Hi, this is Chris Finch. I'm lead pastor of City Walk Church. I want to thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you don't already know, the best way to stay connected with City Walk Church is with our app. Just go to your device's app store and search City Walk Church to find it. Whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus or you're just investigating faith, our hope is that this message will help you take your next step in that journey. If you're in the area, we would love to have you come join us in person. For more information or to plan your visit, check us out at citywalkchurch.com or on social media at WeAreCityWalkCA. Well, we are, uh, as Cherie said, excited about continuing a series that we started uh, about four weeks ago. Uh, when we went into this COVID-19 uh, experience that, you know, our whole world has been kind of caught up in, uh, we've been, uh, I think, probably 16 weeks or so that we haven't had uh, live church. And about a month and a half, two months ago, like other churches, we began to talk about what it might look like to regather. And so we began to put some plans together about where, you know, where we would even meet and, and kind of some of the logistics of it. But we were also beginning to think through, hey, what do we want to focus on as far as our teaching throughout the summer? And uh, we had come up with, we were looking forward to diving into the book of Ephesians uh, starting four weeks ago and just kind of spending the summer in a book that Paul wrote from prison that is rich in theology, but also is very practical. And uh, then about four or five weeks ago, as you guys know, uh, the heartbreaking death that has kind of rocked our really entire country of George Floyd happened. And I remember sitting uh, at my, in my office, which at this point is in my bedroom uh, during COVID-19, uh, and I was studying Ephesians, getting ready for that first Sunday where we were going to begin teaching through the book, and I just con- felt this heavy kind of heaviness in my heart that, you know what, I don't know that we're supposed to teach Ephesians this week. And uh, we had been thinking about doing a series like this around October as election time was starting to happen. But I just felt, and I called a few people on our team and said, hey, here's what I'm thinking. What do you guys think? And and everybody said, yes, we need to have a conversation. And and so that's what we did. Four weeks ago, uh, we began a, a conversation about race, politics, and social justice. And uh, our goal throughout this whole series, and we've said it every single week, has not been to change someone's opinion or get them to vote for somebody else, but instead it's been to have a conversation about these things and really hear the heart of God on these subjects and then hopefully reflect the heart of God. And uh, today, as we close out our series, I'm happy to, and I'll introduce him here in a second, but happy to have a good friend of mine, Akeem, with me. Uh, for this set, uh, time together, but our, our last session kind of in this series today, specifically, we're going to talk about racism. And uh, the church, if you do any study in history, the church has kind of a mixed history as it relates to racism. And here's what I mean. There's been times in history that Jesus followers and people that would say they were part of the church did a really good job and were a catalyst to some great Uh, moves forward and and just some real justice, some great things. But then there's been other times in history that the church and people that say they're followers of Jesus haven't really done a really great job. And in fact, there's been times in history that people have done things in the name of Jesus that Jesus would have never signed his name to. 
There's been times in history that instead of seeing situations through the gospel, people have seen situations through their political bent, and that has not worked out well. And so today, we want to have a discussion about the topic of racism, and and we want to really hear uh, the heart of God on this subject. And so I was real excited uh, to have a friend of mine, Akeem Smith, who's from Oakland, uh, that was available to be with us this morning. And so, Akeem, just kind of introduce yourself to CityWalk and uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing in Oakland. Yeah, so uh, my name is Akeem, and um, Smith is my last name. Super generic last name. <laughs> but uh, my family and I um, started a church in Oakland about six months or eight months ago now. And so uh, we moved from Las Vegas. Anybody ever been to Vegas? I won't tell. Go ahead, raise your hand. Yeah. Online. A few people. Yeah. Few people. And so, uh, yeah, we moved to Las Vegas to start a brand new church from scratch called Storyline. And uh, the reason that kind of drew us to Oakland was, um, man, my wife lived in Bay Area for a couple of years in San Jose, and I was in Vegas, and I would travel to see her and kind of fell in love with her, but also fell in love with the area as mm-hmm. we kind of surveyed and walked around San Francisco and Oakland and really had a passion for what we saw. Uh, there was a lot of people that were homeless, um, a lot of gentrification that was taking place based upon the research that we've done. And so we saw a, a great need in the city of Oakland, and our hearts kind of broke for that. And so we wanted to come to the Bay Area, start a life-giving church uh, in a place that was really needed. Yeah, and you guys started in September? Of 2019, yep. So they're, they're at a spot now where they are such a young church that they are actually, by the time they get back together, they will have met more online as a church than they had in person. And uh, if you look up Storyline Church, you'll see they're doing some really great things. And we're just thankful to just have a friend in Oakland and uh, someone of a like heart, like faith. And today, one of the questions, and Akeem and I talked about this a little bit last night, and I, I wanted you to kind of share with us a little bit of your heart on this. When, as a, a young person, do you remember first experiencing racism and, and maybe as you grew up, when have you experienced that living in Las Vegas? Yeah. Uh, so my story is a little bit kind of unique in that um, I'm a foreigner. So my parents were from Belize, uh, Central America, a good vacation spot. Mm-hmm. And uh, they immigrated from Belize to Las Vegas when I was about five or six years old. And so um, I fit in with the black community because I looked like them. But when I spoke, I had an accent. And so I didn't fit in as much. Um, and then I was also in some degree, isolated from people that didn't look like me. And so, um, yeah, I remember in, I think it's fourth or fifth grade, I think it was, that I was on the bus and I was going to school and I was sitting in a seat and a white kid came up to me and said, hey, that's, that's my seat. And I said, I, don't, I literally said this, I said, I don't see your name on it. And he said, that's my seat. I sit there every time. And I said, I'm just going to stay here. You can sit with me if you want. And he said, the N-word um, in a derogatory way. And so uh, I was shocked because I never heard the word spoken towards me in a derogatory way before mm-hmm. so that I just stood up and I just moved my mm-hmm. seat. Um, and then I remember moving to the south side of Las Vegas. If you've ever been, it's very affluent, the south side of Las Vegas. And so I went to a good school, got a good education at Sierra Vista. And there, um, my junior year, I believe it was, and uh, we're in PE in the locker room, which that's always a good time mm-hmm. of the, the day in, in PE. And I was in PE with my friends, and we were just, you know, having fun. And I was standing outside the double doors where you exit the door to go into the field. And uh, a white kid, he's younger than me, I think he was a sophomore or something like that, mm-hmm. came up to me. And I heard the words again, and 
He looked at me and said, N-word, and said, move. Mm. And honestly, I was so taken back by it that immediately I, I thought about when I was in the fifth grader. And so you would think that I was, I'm taller than him, I'm bigger than him, I can respond, you know, and I wasn't a Christian back then either, so I was like, hey, I have every right to right. respond. Um, and so uh, for me, I was just so shocked by the, the word that was used towards me that, to kind of, that was meant to tear me down. And so I moved out of the way because I went back to the fifth grade. Mm. And as a result of that, um, yeah. Yeah. With, you, with uh, all that's happened in the last few weeks, uh, really the last month, and, and there's, a, there's a lot that's happened in the last few weeks, but then there's things that have happened a few years ago, so, uh, but just most recently uh, with George Floyd and the death of George Floyd and just the heartbreaking, whole thing was heartbreaking, and uh, probably most people in here have, have seen that video and, and have heard commentary on that video, and, but I know what I felt like, and probably everyone in the room had a, a certain feeling, and, and you felt certain emotions when you saw that, but I really would be interested, you know, from your perspective, being a, a black guy that's there in Oakland, man, when you saw that, and that all started to take place, what, was feel, what were you and your wife feeling, just what was your heart feeling? Yeah, um, a lot of people in the black community, at least the ones that I have uh, interactions with when we see videos like that or hear something like that on Twitter or whatever, uh, a lot of them don't watch it mm. because of the emotional trauma. My wife still haven't seen it to this day. Um, and so when I came across the video on Twitter, immediately my heart just mm -hmm. like, that could have been, that could have been me, you know, or somebody else that I knew. And so, and, and George Floyd, like his, his death, it's, it's different from the, the others that we've experienced in the past and, you know, um, uh, 2014 and 2016, but his was just remarkably different because he was already arrested. Um, and so to see that person being treated like that, that could have been me. And so even now my wife and I, when even before I came up here, when I, I'm an extrovert, so I can't be quarantined for too long. I got to get out. Yeah. And so uh, I would take a drive and before I leave, my wife would come to me and say, I love you. And for me, those words are not just like, you know, I think about George Floyd because mm -hmm. that's what she's thinking about. That's what she's feeling emotionally. She's a little bit fearful, and it's yeah. not just the I love you. It's I love you if something happens to right. you. Right, yeah. And so um, the word that keeps coming to my mind is uh, surprise. Like, I'm not surprised by the death of George Floyd, um, maybe as sad as that, that sounds, but at the same time, um, it is, we live in an age that, like, you can become a hashtag, like, tomorrow. Yeah. You know, and so um, you could be in the right place, right time, completely uh, um, uh, uh, with, like, in agreement with the law and everything and um, mm. still end up as a hashtag. And so that's kind of scary for uh, a black man or anybody, for that matter, in, in, in a community that lives uh, lives there. And so for me, mostly it's been, it's been a lot to kind of, to, mm -hmm. to process through and so yeah yeah I know when I, I shared this in the first service uh, I was in Florida before we moved to California and I was serving at a church Center Point Church and a good friend of mine who was also on staff there his name was Jay Sanders and, and he was also a black guy and uh, one of the best communicators I've ever met just a real sharp guy he worked oversaw our next generation ministries at Center Point and I remember the time when, I don't remember where we were going, but I was riding, I think I was riding in his car, 
And we began a discussion about this. And I remember him sharing with me about how, Chris, when I walk into a store, people look at me differently than they look at you. And I thought, what? are you serious, Jay? I mean, you, you really, because he, he, this is a, just a sharp guy, like, had, I have so much respect for him, great leader. And I just thought, seriously. And then he, he said, and, and when, when I get stopped by a police officer, I have to be careful about things that I do with my hands. I just have to be much more careful and thoughtful than you have to be. And I, I grew up in Central Florida, middle class kid, never really had a ton of black friends, just never understood that side of it. And so I remember as he shared that with me, literally looking at him and just saying, Jay, I'm so sorry that you experienced that. I, I, first of all, it blew my mind that, that you've experienced that, but I'm so sorry that you experienced that. And I, I think conversations like this help us, uh, help us really understand. Just, okay, I can kind of now see from your perspective. I, I, I don't feel that as a white guy, but okay... That's what you experience that helps me better understand and then empathize with what you're going through that I don't face. And recently, I came with the death of George Floyd and just a lot, lot of stuff that's going on. One of the phrases and one of the hashtags that has risen back to the top that started a few years back is the hashtag Black Lives Matter. And though we would not endorse the organization Black Lives Matter and all the things they believe in and all the things that people do underneath the umbrella, we wouldn't endorse all of it. But the phrase is really important. And I'd love to hear from your perspective, what does that phrase mean to someone like you that maybe you could help us better understand? Yeah, Uh, that's a really uh, good question, especially with conversations like this. because oftentimes we jump to the, the movement or the organization as a whole. And so we don't agree on, you know, right. all those things. In any organization, you want to agree on everything. And so um, when I hear that phrase or that hashtag or I see it or someone share it with me, uh, Black Lives Matter, I, I hear a cry in the black community. That's what I see. I see a cry in the black community. Mm. And it's not just a, a cry that, you know, uh, began three weeks ago, like you mentioned, or 2016 or before that. Um, it's a generational cry. It's a generational cry of people that have a strong culture um, towards black lives. So, for instance, like, like uh, this never fails. Like, some of you, you have, you have black friends. By the way, I have white friends, too. But, like, if you go to uh, a restaurant, like, me and my friends, we go to restaurants, a mixed group. And, um, you know, this never fails. It happens every time. My white friends, right, this, a, a white guy, a white person does something stupid and just, it's just ignorant. And my white friends will say, what is he doing? He's stupid. What are you doing, bro? Like, what, is, what are you doing? That's dumb. Uh, but my black friends, every time, if someone black does something ignorant, they always say, never fails. What are we doing? Come on, like, we could do better than this, mm-hmm. right? That's their response because there have been so much struggle within the black community. Mm-hmm that they almost bring us together this pain of 300 plus years of slavery to this piece of legislation that was supposed to be an apology, but that handicapped some black people in specific communities and then Jim Crow's and segregation, all these different things. And now that's common struggles kind of bring us together 
And so when we see somebody act out, it's like, oh, I feel like that's me. Like there's this community, this mm -hmm. strong attachment, this common pain. And my point is the fact that like when we see the hashtag, it's, it's a cry of oppression. It's a cry of being marginalized. It's a cry of I haven't been heard. My voice has been suppressed. And so mm. um, collectively, the group of people that see that hashtag and now a growing number within our white brothers and sisters that are also, you know, in, in uh, compliant with that, um, it's a cry that we understand that like this is something that's real, it's happened mm -hmm. to the black community and we want to identify with them in that way. Mm. So even when I use it, it's I'm identifying with you. And so, yeah. That's an interesting thought. Like for instance, when I see a white person do something stupid, I don't, I don't take ownership of that and like, hey, get your stuff together. But it's very interesting that you said when, when the black community sees someone that does something, they almost own it like, hey, we can do better. And that's, that's really good insight uh, perspective that I didn't, I don't think white people feel that way about white people. But it's interesting the community in, in the black community to, that they really do take ownership because of the oppression that they faced as a group. They call out each other and like, hey, let's not do that. Something about pain when you experience it, you, you you feel it for the person that you're going through with it. You know, mm -hmm. um, if you're this happens in, in some level with if you feel some of it, like for instance, like if a friend of your pa yours passed away, uh, or his, his mother that was close to him passed away, you would feel a, a, a empathy, a pain towards that. Um, and so, when you go through a struggle as a, a race, a group of people, you've been through certain things together. It's the same, the same kind of feeling that you kind of rally together. What would you say, for instance, so we live here in Yuba City. We don't, a lot different than Oakland. Uh, but I've, I've heard in our area and, and from well-meaning people, they, they said, you know, it's just not like that around here. And, and, and maybe it is. Maybe it's not, it's not exactly like Oakland or it's not maybe exactly like it is, is in Minneapolis. But racism is real everywhere. Uh, it shows itself in different ways. And so what would you say to uh, just mainly a bunch of white people, most of us, that would either say, hey, it's not as big of a deal as it's being made, or when the conversation comes up, you kind of direct it in different ways and throw out a bunch of statistics of why it's not the same. Like, what would you say to that? Yeah, um, I would say that uh, even though, because that's true in some cases, like Yuba is not like Oakland. Mm -hmm. um, but my question would be like, how do you know that? Like, do you have a relationship with uh, people of color, black people in your city, in your sphere of influence, in your workplace, um, in your school, that you would know that? Because when you get close to that, you'll, you'll see like, oh, maybe it actually does exist. Mm -hmm. and, and it doesn't look like the form that maybe we see publicized and that's marketed all over the world and social media, but there's still a, a level of racism that exists and prejudices. Like I remember growing up and um, this would be a, a, a offhanded compliment, I guess, a backhanded compliment, I think the phrase is. Um, people would say, Akeem, you, you, don't, you, don't talk, you don't talk black. You don't dress like a, a black person, right? Um, and which means like, hey, that means you're not, am I not black because I don't dress or I don't talk like I'm black? And that's a, that's a backhanded compliment. 
to say that, oh, you're not like yeah. the other people. Um, and so that's just different ways that exist in, in communities and people's lives and in cities mm -hmm. uh, without seeing the high level 90,000 foot view of racism that we uh, see uh, proselytized in, in, in our mm -hmm. media and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So We talked about this a little bit last night at dinner, uh, but one of the things, and I, I think we would all agree that no matter kind of where you sit politically, all, what's going on has taken the issue of racism and uh, just all that goes with that, and it's really brought that to the forefront, to where people that weren't noticing it or w it wasn't a big deal, uh, at least it's, it's more on the forefront of people's minds, which will then help with uh, some systems being changed and some things being done differently that will help the, you know, overall. But I think we would, we would agree that, you know, systems are important uh, and systems help. But systems just mask the heart issues. So a system might fix something for a while, but if the heart isn't dealt with and if the heart isn't transformed, then that system is going to hold it off for a while, but it's never going to really change at a heart level. And so we talked a little bit about this. Where does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope he brings for our eternity how does he bring hope to this conversation? And as I was thinking about it, in, 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 as I was just thinking about this conversation, I thought one of the things that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ does in this conversation is it reminds us of our desperate need. And here's what I mean by that. If we could fix this on our own, we would have already done it. Somebody would have done it a long time ago. If this could have been taken care of, just like all the other injustices in the world, if, if it was a human thing that, hey, if the humans just got their stuff together and just were better people, it would all go away. It would have went away. But it's a heart thing. And there's a passage in, in Jeremiah chapter 17 that says this. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And there's another passage in Isaiah that says it refers to our good works as filthy rags. Our righteous acts, the best that we bring to the table, is about as good as filthy rags. And so for me, the, when, when I think about what Jesus did by leaving heaven and coming to earth, it reminds me that I can't fix this with a system just like we can't fix pornography or sex trafficking or you fill in the blank with whatever like we need something outside of ourselves to transform us on the inside to bring lasting change and Jesus Christ coming to earth dying on the cross first Corinthians Paul writes uh, in verse 3 of first Corinthians 15 he says this for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then Paul goes on and talks about the different people that saw the risen Christ. And what in this conversation I think is so important that we remember is first that, man, we have a desperate need. Like, I need Jesus to not be prejudiced. And, and if you don't think you need Jesus, then there's probably a, a whole other issue. Like, we need Jesus to not do evil. 
Because on our own, we're one like, decision away from ruining everything. But I love the, the, just the fact that it says that Jesus came, he died for our sins, rose from the grave, and, and I talked about this in our last service. It, it's like Jesus basically made an exchange with us. He said, hey, you can't fix yourself, you can't change your heart, and so I'm going to come, I'm going to pay for the sin that has destroyed your heart, because sin destroys things, and I'm going to exchange my righteousness for your sinfulness. And so I'm going to pay for your sin, and I'm going to give you righteousness and holiness and love and compassion, and I'm going to take your sin, and we're going to make an exchange. And I love uh, what a friend of ours in Las Vegas, Vance Pittman, says, because here's what, if you're a follower of Jesus, here's what we tend to do. All right, I know Jesus, I got my, my fire insurance, I'm not going to go to hell, and now I'm going to work really hard at living for Jesus. I'm not going to be racist, I'm not going to look at pornography, I'm not going to gossip, I'm going to work really hard at living for Jesus, and we usually come up short every time. And what our friend in Las Vegas says, Vance, he says, you know what, we need to stop working hard at living for Jesus and allow Jesus' life to be lived through us. And there's a really big difference. Because my heart, as Akeem's heart, even with Jesus, there's still flesh inside. And the cross and what Jesus did by exchanging his, sinful, or his righteousness for my sinfulness now gives me the power to walk into a room and not live my life, but allow Jesus to live through me so we can step into the ugliness of racism, lust, pornography, whatever you fill in the blank with, and we can bring Jesus into that, which is the only thing that's going to transform. And so I think it's really important if you are a follower of Jesus, that you see all of these issues through the filter of the good news of the gospel, the fact that Jesus exchanged our sinfulness for his righteousness. And because of that, we can bring light and salt to these conversations, which will change things. As we kind of continue on in the conversation, Akeem, I'd love for you, because this whole thing has really, like I said, helped us look at this differently. Systems are going to change. But a lot of the systems that are going to change are things that are out there. I want to talk about, just real practically, as we kind of close up our conversation, what can we do right here? Like, what can I do next week to bring Jesus and what Jesus would bring to the issue of racism right here where we live as a church, but also as individuals? And so, could you share with us a little bit? Yeah, um, to add to what you just said, because that's a really good word, I think what you talk about, like having faith being the premise of how we approach those conversations and those situations help us to breathe empathy in, into, into mm -hmm. our lives with other people. Um, but to, just to add to what you said, um, racism is, like uh, we talked about this last night, racism is a feeling of partiality or superiority towards another person or a group of or, or, or people. And so um, that's what racism is. For instance, like if you and I went to the store and behind the counter someone had uh, feelings of superiority or partiality towards me, that wouldn't affect me at all. I could, I could give a rip. I, 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 it wouldn't matter, right? Um, in some cases, we wouldn't even know. Mm -hmm. But if he or she acted on those feelings, 
then that would be injustice. And so um, the gospel teaches us, like you said, uh, the gospel teaches us that grace is the heart, mm-hmm. right? It cures the heart of racism that someone carries in their heart. But it also teaches us, the Bible teaches us that uh, laws help restrain the heart from acting out on those feelings mm-hmm. of partiality, of superiority. It's sort of flatten the curve, if you will, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so in some degree, we need both. So racism is a twofold issue. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, a sin addressed in the hearts, but also sin addressed in the systems. Mm-hmm. And so we do need both, but like you said, it only flattens the curves. It doesn't cure the, the, the problem. Mm-hmm. It deals with the symptoms. It doesn't mm-hmm. cure the problem. And so um, from a gospel perspective, that's why the gospel is so important in these mm-hmm. conversations. Mm-hmm. Because if there's anybody, and hopefully you would agree with this, but if there's anybody who should feel a superiority, a superiority towards anybody, it should be, should be God, right? Because God is literally on another cloud, another, another level, level of himself. Yeah. He's an alien. Like, there's nobody else like him. And so um, the fact that he stepped out of heaven and leveraged his, I guess you can say this word, privilege, right? In fact, the scripture says... Uh, in Philippians, it says that Jesus did not count a robbery to be equal with God, mm-hmm. to be used his own advantage. But he became, he emptied himself, kenosis, mm-hmm. nothing, became nothing, and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Mm-hmm. So God leveraged his privilege for those around him to bring us up to a quality, a status of life that God intended for all of us to have. Mm-hmm. And that's why the gospel is so beautiful for those that are oppressed, because we can see that in Jesus, God has already raised us up to a status of life mm-hmm. that he already intended for all of us to have. But it also is helpful for those who are the oppressed because it says, I can leverage, not lose it. That's important. I think a lot of people think that we lose our privilege, but no, it's just you leverage your privilege to raise everybody else up to a mm-hmm. status and quality of life that God intended for all of us to That's have. Yeah. And so on a practical level, uh, I think something that we can do is to evaluate our own values. Like, is there anything in me that has unconscious biases towards another race, right? Um, And uh, it might look different for everybody, but I even have to ask myself that question because culture has trained me in some way to look at myself, people that look like me, a certain way. Mm -hmm. Like, the reality is, we talked about this last night, that, like, it's an elephant in the room that nobody talks about, but... White people are afraid of black men. And that's uncomfortable for me to say and for anybody else to hear it or to even say it. But that's where a lot of the issues are coming from is this idea of fear. Mm-hmm. There's this fear towards any, a person that's uh, of color or anything in any circumstance. But, and so I think that one thing that would be helpful for us on a practical level is relationships. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, to eliminate the fear, because what you do when you fear something, you avoid it. Mm-hmm. You you put it over there. I'm afraid of snakes, terrified of them. Right. I don't look at them. I scroll on social media. There's a girl in our church that she collects them. I just keep scrolling. I'm not looking at it. See, I avoid it. But like relationships bring you close. Mm-hmm. So context is the key to compassion. Um, if you want to know what someone's feeling, what's going through and the next need to help is to get close in proximity to them. And once you get in proximity, you can see the needs that are arising to meet in that someone's life, in that community, in that city, in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And so I think context is the key to compassion. Jesus did this all the time. He went to Jerusalem, and when he got to Jerusalem, 
he looked and saw that uh, the city was broken down. So he wept over the city. Mary and Martha, he, he got there. Lazarus was dead. And they said, if you had been here, Jesus, you know, my brother would still be alive. What happened? Before he offered a solution, before he gave data, he wept. And he was empathetic towards them before offering a solution. Mm -hmm. And so context is the key to compassion. The more close in proximity you get to people, uh, then you understand next steps of how to best serve and come alongside them. Mm -hmm. And you, you said something in the last service. You said being empathetic for somebody doesn't mean that you agree with everything or are all, even on the same page with all your beliefs, but you feel what yeah. they feel. Yeah. Which is so important. Yeah. And you use, I love the illustration you used uh, last services. So if my little girl Kate runs out and runs out into the middle of the road, falls down, scrapes up her knee, and runs in the house, bloody knees, crying, I'm not going to sit down with her right then and say, hey, Kate, you should not have ran out into the road. I, we had this conversation. I'm not going to give her a lot of data and a lot of why and a lot of, no, I'm going to hug her and give her as much ice cream as she wants and love her and like, what do you need, baby? I don't want you to cry. And I think that was such a good illustration. It's like just listening, crying with people, feeling what they feel is what Jesus was the master at because it seemed like if you read through the gospels, the people on the front row of Jesus's talks were people that he didn't agree with everything they did and even their lifestyle, but he felt for them and he loved them deeply. And it was that love that really drew them. To That's him. what's so interesting about Jesus, because people who didn't look like him or like him liked him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, how, how does that happen? It's because he was so empathetic mm -hmm. and he represented a brand of love that was so unique mm -hmm. that literally changed the world. That's good, man. I want to close out, and, and we did this last service, and I want to close, and, and I want to pray specifically for Akeem uh, and his ministry at Storyline in Oakland. Uh, like I said, they started in September, and uh, then, like us, uh, went, had to go all online, and, and they're in this position now where they were meeting in a movie theater, and so uh, it's still going to be for them six to eight weeks before they look to even be able to have services again live and they're looking potentially at it, looking for another location and all that and so and we just really want to pray for them and so uh, while the band comes up and uh, kind of gets ready for the last song uh, I want to just kneel with you here friend and uh, just pray for you and and while I pray for for him out loud would you pray for Akeem and for his his wife and their their church there in Oakland uh, that God would really use them in the midst of uh, really uh, a lot going on in Oakland right now. Even outside of your, your door, you told me, like, stuff's going on right in the front yard almost uh, where you're able to bring Jesus to those conversations and situations. So let's, let's pray for Akeem, and then the band's going to come and uh, sing a song, and then we're going to give away things to dads, which is fun. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for just the opportunity to uh, bring the gospel to the conversation of racism. And Lord, honestly, if, if we weren't able to bring the gospel to this conversation and we weren't able to look at your life, this would be hopeless. And Lord, I pray that from our conversation today, Lord, that you would have just pricked our own hearts 
that we might maybe understand a little bit more things we didn't understand before. Maybe we have an opportunity to empathize in a way that we didn't empathize before. And I pray, God, that we would be able to see all these situations through the lens of your life, your death, your resurrection, and the hope it brings. Lord, I pray for Akeem. I thank you for his leadership, uh, for his young church, Lord, that uh, he started with a team there in Oakland. Lord, I pray that you would give him wisdom as he seeks to pastor and shepherd his gathering into this next season. Lord, I pray that you would provide them with a facility that would meet the needs of their church and be a place where they could gather together in person very soon and continue to do what you've called them to do in that city. Lord, I pray that you would give Akeem and, and the team there, just give them open doors, Lord. I pray you would open doors for them to just continue to enter that community and bring you to that community. And uh, Lord, I pray that both for City Walk and Storyline, that we would be people that keep you lead and that you are always our lead story and that we always bring you first to any conversation. And Lord, I, I just pray that uh, you would use us and Lord, teach us. I pray that you would teach us as gatherings, but you would also teach us as individuals what our part is in your story in our area. In Jesus' name, amen.